This is a KTF Press podcast. God determined our times and our lands and then specifically placed us there. Um, and I think that comes out, right? It's, it's in direct response to Babel um, and this, this desire for this, um, this monoculture, this monolinguistic society that vies with the Lord uh, in terms of control. And so instead, you know, we are placed in these specific locations um, and develop this like intimacy with God and this intimacy with creation in those places. And none of us has the entire picture, right? Each of us has these different pieces. And then together we, we get to see more of like the tapestry of who the creator is. Welcome to Shake the Dust, leaving colonized faith for the kingdom of God. I am Jonathan Walton. And I'm Cy Hoekstra. We have uh, a really great conversation for you today. Uh, it's going to be on <laughs> indigenous sort of everything. Uh, we'll get to the specifics in a minute, but we'll be talking about education and culture and theology and um, things that are going on with activism um, through specifically the lens of our guest's life and work uh, on the island of Oahu. Uh, before we get into that, really quickly, as always, please remember the best way to support this show and the centering and elevating marginalized voices that we do in our attempt to get ourselves out of colonized faith is uh, to go to ktfpress.com and become a subscriber on our Substack. Uh, that gets you the free bonus up, but that gets you not the free, that gets you the bonus episodes of this show and the newsletter that we do every week uh, where we bring you highlights from media for. Uh, to help you in your discipleship and your political education. And that supports all the work that we do at KTF Press, the books and everything else. Um, you can hear that I'm sick, I'm sure. And I apologize for that. That's just an unavoidable truth about uh, the state of my respiratory system right now. <laughs> Thank you for everybody's <laughs> grace listening. Um, Jonathan, could you... Oh, you know what? I should say before uh, before I go to you, Jonathan, you can always get a free month on our subscription at ktfpress.com by going to ktfpress.com slash free month. Start that subscription out with a free month. Okay, Jonathan, tell everybody who we have with us today. Absolutely. Today we have with us soon-to-be Dr. Danny Espiritu. Um, she is Kanaka Maoli, our native Hawaiian, an educator raising Kaneoe Oahu, and currently living in Waiomalu, Ewa, Oahu. Her ancestors come from Maui, Hawaii Island, as well as China, Samoa, Puerto Rico, Korea, the Philippines, Spain, and other parts of Europe. Danny is on staff within Varsity's Hawaii Justice Programs, where she develops programs and resources that focus on the intersection of justice, aina, meaning the land that which feeds, Hawaiian culture, and faith in Jesus. She also works with Ho'olaho Ya Kalawau, a community organization that seeks to restore life and abundance in Kalau, a land division in Ewa Oahu, where they focus on education, advocacy, and the restoration of Lo'ikalo, which is an irrigated tarot field. In addition, Danny is a doctoral candidate at the University of Hawaii at Manoa College of Education, where her work focuses on indigenous food systems, Oivi, or native identity, and resurgence. And she organizes with the Shutdown Red Hill Coalition and Oahu and the Oahu Water Protectors. Danny, thank you so much for spending the time with us to to be with our audience to, to so that we can sit at your feet 
um, to learn and listen. We are deeply, deeply appreciative. Yeah. Mahalo, Jonathan and Sai. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. So we uh, came up with the questions and the topics for everything um, for this episode before the wildfire started in Maui. So we just wanted to give you the opportunity to say anything that you think our listeners should know about what's happening there and um, kind of just give you some space to talk about that topic uh, before we jump into everything else that we had planned, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Mahalo to you folks for just the opportunity to be here and, and to share. Um, and also thanks so much for the, the pule, the prayers uh, and support that folks, I think, uh, internationally have been have been offering. Um, I think it's important to put the the fires that are happening currently on Maui uh, in the context of what you know has happened historically as well as politically um, in Lahaina more specifically. Right, Lahaina is the main area. There there were also fires in other parts of the island, but in Lahaina, Lahaina in the 1800s was known as the Venice of the Pacific, and so it was it was filled with water that had since been diverted for things like sugar um, and then subsequently continued to be diverted uh, for things like resorts, hotels, gentlemen, what they call gentlemen estates um, and things like that. Um, and that, you know, creates a huge part of the catalyst for uh, the landscape being extracted in the way that it is that's set up for the potential for the fires. Um, and so that, that's, I think, one piece that is ongoing, you know, in the midst of everything, Maui was continuing to see um, upwards of 2000 tourists a day um, in the midst of people having lost their homes over about a thousand people who are still, um, you know, uh, the, the searches, the searches are continuing to happen. Uh, many of us have, have family members and have uh, close friends uh, who've lost all of their belongings um, and some who've had to, you know, um, escape uh, the, the fires. Um, and at the same time, while that is happening, you know, we have tourists that are swimming in the same waters that like in our, our family members and, and bodies of loved ones were retrieved from, you know, less than uh, less than a week previously. Um, and so those are some of the, the to, to kind of put it within the context of um, this this heavy tourist industry that's being that's being pushed uh, we also have families who've lost everything that are getting calls from people who want to buy their land while they're still grieving while they're Gosh. still grieving loved ones um, and you know like companies that um, are are using this as a way to kind of uh, leverage uh, the the tragedy and and use it as a way to to you know do large land and and water grabs um, and so most recently, within the last week, um, the the deputy com commissioner, the deputy commissioner for uh, what we call Seaworm, the Commission on Water Resource Management, was removed from his position, and he has a long history of advocacy for Hawaiian farmers, particularly in Maui. Um, and there are a series of of articles that uh, you know accused him of of withholding water for the fighting of fires, and and later on that information was. Um, came out to be false that the water that was in question wasn't even connected to fire hydrants that could have could have um, you know gone to protect protect homes but yet he was removed and the state now um, under this emergency proclamation of affordable housing um, is getting ready to rebuild rebuild Lahaina is kind of like the 
the code phrase while the Lahaina community itself uh, is saying to wait and allow folks to grieve. Um, and that emergency proclamation that was made by the, the governor of Hawaii um, sidesteps cultural protections, sidesteps environmental protections, and sidesteps um, historical preservation protections by law. It also sidesteps sunshine law, uh, you know, which is like a, a protection created in the government that allows back, backdoor deals <laughs> not to happen. So all of that kind of is happening amidst this incredible tragedy that I think a lot of folks are, are not aware of. Yeah, that is not the story that a lot of us are hearing um, from the media. And um, it's hard to say we appreciate you bringing the perspective when the perspective is is a lot of corruption and tragedy. But it is um, it is typical. I mean, my, my wife's family is from Haiti, and the exact same thing happened after the earthquake in 2010. A bunch of foreign mining companies came in and said, now's the time to grab land, right? And mm-hmm. um, it is it's it is what happens, and it's horrible. And, and um we, I, I would, I would want to know actually um, where our audience can go to either find, you know, ways to support through um, prayer or through giving money to to the right places. Uh, where would you send them? Yeah, um, I would say the the University of Hawaii uh, website. We've put together a page specifically focused on Maui um, that has a number of links tied to general resources, background information for folks who you know, want to sign petitions and advocacy things, they're there. Um, and then what we've done is also compile um, the pictures, brief stories, and um, donation information from our, our own family. So it's everybody connected with the University of Hawaii uh, family, essentially. Uh, they're listed there. And then we also link to the donation sites of, of other organizations who are hosting, you know, uh, over 800 Lahaina families who have been displaced or lost loved ones and, you know, other, other links like that as well are on there. Okay, great. So we will put the the link to that in the show notes for this episode. So you can just check your player if you want to go there uh, and help out. Thank you for giving us that context, that update and that, those things to do in response. Let, let's maybe get into to you a little bit more so people have a little bit more of your context as we continue to talk about these similar types of issues throughout everything we're going to talk about today. Um, can you just give us a sense of what you are doing right now? As Jonathan mentioned, you're a PhD candidate. Um, can you, can you explain to us what you're studying and, and what you're doing your thesis on? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a candidate at the College of Education at University of Hawaii at Manoa, um, in the curriculum studies department. Um, and so my research looks specifically at the restoration of, of lo'ikalo, or one of the main indigenous food systems for us here in Hawaii, um, and ways that, you know, restoring lo'i and really restoring the pilin or the relationship between us as kanaka or as people and aina or land or that which feeds us, how us restoring those relationships um, really uh, helps with health, it helps with identity, it helps us to remember who we are and, and you know, how we're built. Um, and really it, it leads to resurgence for the community, um, both culturally uh, as well as in terms of you know, like we're talking about on this show in terms of justice um, mm. and wholeness. And so a, a good chunk of it will focus on uh, my own journey in restoring that relationship, as well as work that I'm doing with an organization called Ho'ola Ho'ya Kalawo, uh, which Jonathan mentioned as well. Uh, and so we're a, we're a community org in Kalawo Evo O'ahu, um, where we're restoring Lo'ikalo. So it's an area where traditionally, um, it was all spring-fed lo'ikalo. Today, it's a complete urban area, and that's the last agricultural space in several land divisions in either direction. And so really what we're doing is um, 
holding space amidst urbanization um, where families, not just Hawaiian families, but families can reconnect with Aina, yeah, with land, uh, can reconnect with one another, can, can grow food. Um, and I think in particular in, Hawaii, in a Hawaiian context, you know, um, kalo or taro is, a, is an indigenous food. Yeah, that food literally kept our people alive um, from, you know, the beginning of time. Um, and it also is a part of our own um, genealogies. It links us back to kalo. It links us back to that, um, that ancestral food or that ancestral plant. And so um, the transformation that happens as, as kanaka are allowed to do that, um, and we learn and relearn how to do that together in a cultural context. Uh, and so a lot of it will focus on that um, as well as just what, it, how do we reconnect, you know, in, in the 21st century um, and the importance of remembering the names of our winds and rains and peaks and valleys and the, the wisdom in, in those names and in the, the messages and lessons of our people and our ancestors. In your work, like restoring, um, like the identity and abundance through land and stewardship, like what did that look like for you as a little girl? You know, like what was there a conversation or an interaction or a prayer meeting or something that like sparked that desire to go back and connect? Because I think for a lot of us, as we decide to leave colonized faith or want to, like, quote unquote, decolonize, like there. It, we there's a process that happens and so it's rare that we're able to walk in that process and i feel like you're walking in that process every day and so if you could just explain a little bit about that i think that would be a gift to to our listeners yeah i think a huge part of my understanding of it actually came as an adult um and so i i feel like i was raised in a pretty american household you know i grew up speaking english i grew up uh the push in Hawaii to assimilate uh, to uh, the American culture uh, came really hard where, you know, like the folks who were responsible for the overthrow created this pamphlet that told their story of the history. And that pamphlet became the, uh, the textbook in Hawaii for about 40 years. And so that was what informed um, and, and coupled with that, you know, like Hawaiian language was out, outlawed. And so that informed the, the education of my grandparents and my parents. And so um, that just to so, some historical and, and I guess political context in that. And so, so I think me and, and those in my generation and my family were raised very American. And it wasn't until learning more about the overthrow and, you know, um, more of the history and, and getting activated in that way and in high school and then in college um, and realizing the disconnect and the harm that that has caused our family in particular, and then, you know, um, Hawaiians more collectively. Um, it was after that and coming back home, uh, I was in school in Oregon and I came back home, um, really wanting to, uh, to reconnect. And that was when I started getting uh, more involved in, you know, restoring lo'i, uh, in connecting with aina and things like that. I learned Hawaiian um, and whatnot. So, but... Um, I think seeing the seeds of the importance of connection, connection with Aina, you know, my, my, my mom and, and my mom's family were fisher, fishermen, fisher people, um, and learned, grew up gathering. Um, and so that was something that I grew up in, but didn't necessarily, um, realize that, uh, it was a particularly Hawaiian, Hawaiian thing, you know, and, and didn't really realize the importance, I think. Uh, politically and in terms of uh, our community until later on as an adult. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then, you know, during the pandemic, getting to sit with my kupuna, my, my grandparents and hear about, oh, in our community that we live in now, in an area where we can't even touch the ocean any, anymore because of, you know, toxic dumping and illegal dumping from the U.S. military. We, we, we live on the shores of Pu'uloa, also known as Pearl Harbor. Mm. Um, and in my entire lifetime, I've never been able to touch the water because it's contaminated. But then hearing from them the stories of where they would go and gather uh, and the stories of where they would fish and the streams that they would swim in and, and gather from, um, I think there's been a more of an appreciation of that. And so realizing that it's, it's incredibly complex. Like my family didn't grow up speaking Hawaiian, didn't grow up necessarily continuing certain Hawaiian practices, but at the same time we did. Um, and so what are the seeds within, within that in our own family and how do we elevate the, the oral history, elevate the, what we say, ike kupuna, like the, the, ancestral wisdom that's embedded in our own family practices that aren't necessarily elevated at the university or aren't necessarily always elevated um, in certain sorts of situations, um, but that are incredibly important um, in terms of our, our people and our health. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did that answer your question? <laughs> Absolutely. I think, I think it, you know, it makes the connections between like, like all of us to leave whatever the ethnic background or racial assignment that we find ourselves in to leave colonized faith have to do that simple, important work of, of piecing together that tapestry of like, who were we before we were labeled? What did we do before we were forced mm-hmm. to work explicitly or implicitly because of the systems that, that came down and that, that reconnective work, particularly in academic settings can feel belittled. Right. But it's the most important thing. What are we eating? What are we drinking? How are we spending our time? How are we waking up? Like those, those actions um, are, are the, the foundations of resistance. And so, um, so thanks for, for tying the, or showing us what the seeds look like in, in your life. You definitely answered the question. Yeah. Hello. And I, I think like, I, I'm super grateful even at, I mean, at, at UH and, and in the academy in general, I feel like, I'm several like academic generations, I guess, right. um, back from those who really were the only ones um, and were, you know, like uh, portrayed as incredibly violent, you know, in the university and these like voices that uh, needed to carve out space, uh, especially Hawaiian women who were, who were portrayed mm-hmm. uh, a certain way. And I think because of that, those of us who, um, are in grad school now have the ability, you know, like there is, there is always more, more work to do in the fighting. Like I think a lot about Nehemiah, mm. right. In the building and the fighting, there's an incredible amount of work to do in the, in the defense and the fighting. Um, but I think we can also build. Um, and that's an incredible privilege because of those who've con- gone before us. Um, and, and so I, I I'm also very conscious of that, that the reason I can focus on, on this and, and food and, and family and, and all of that is because of those who kind of paved the way in a lot of senses. Mm-hmm. In case any of you are wondering about what Danny was just talking about with um, mentioning the overthrow and a couple of other things uh, there about Hawaiian history, we're going to get to those in a second. I promise mm-hmm. um, we're not going to leave that hanging there because I know there are way too many people who do not know um, about that history. Um, but what I wanted to get into with you for a second first is uh, you were actually one of the authors in the anthology mm-hmm. that we published a few years ago, and you wrote a 
beautiful and tragic and um, just incredible piece for us. And one of the themes that you talked about in that essay, you talked about the idea of following the footsteps of our cultures back to God um, as a particular idea of, of how because kind of native Hawaiian culture, native native Hawaiians view the idea of culture. Can you, can you talk to us about what, what you meant by that? Yeah. Um, so I, I think a lot of it has to do with language. So when we, when we in Hawaii talk about genealogy, right, the word is mo'oku oho. Yeah, mo'o means a succession. Um, so it's a, a succession of people going back. Our word for culture is mo'o meheu. Um, again, mo'o, that same succession, and meheu means footprints. It's this, this succession of footprints that have shaped and formed what we eat, what we say, what we, the way that we view and see things. And um, that's intimately tied with our connection with creation um, or aina, that which feeds and has fed us and, and all of the, um, the other pieces of creation in addition to humans. Um, and it's a familial one um, that is viewed generationally. Um, and then when I think about even, you know, like biblically, uh, if we look at for uh, Romans chapter one, it talks about how, um, you know, the, the, the pieces of the creator are evidenced in creation, right? The eternal and divine power of the creator is seen in creation. And uh, for, for me, knowing folks who, you know, are subsistence fisher, uh, fishermen or who, you know, um, gather food or who are farmers, there is a level of faith that they live by that I don't know that I will ever have in, my, you know, my lifetime. Like there is a level of dependence, um, and understanding and connectedness with the rest of creation just simply because like, if, if you don't understand what is happening, like you will not eat, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and um, there is a generational wisdom that's tied to that uh, for folks who have learned how to subsist in a particular place, you know, for thousands of years. Um, and I think those folks have an insight into the, the, the fingerprints or the footprints of the creator in that specific area in, in ways that only they will know. Um, and so there's pieces like that, um, you know, in, in Acts 17, where it talks about how um, God determined our times and our lands and then specifically placed us there. And so there's this ancestral wisdom that ties us to specific places on the earth. Um, and I think that comes out, right? It's, it's in direct response to Babel. Um, and this this desire for this um, this monoculture, this monolinguistic society um, that that vies with the Lord uh, in terms of control, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so instead, you know, we are placed in these specific locations um, and develop this like intimacy with God and this intimacy with creation in those places, and none of us has the entire picture. Right. Each of us has these different pieces. And then together we we get to see more of like the tapestry of who the creator is. And it was it was it was created like we were meant it was meant to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when I when I think about culture um, and and returning to certain cultures, you know, cultures are are birthed out of generational in- intimacy with land. Um, out of survival, out of out of our people's histories and our people's stories. Uh, in the places that we lived um, and out of our, our people's relationships with the creator. 
um, and the ways that the wisdom of that relationship helped us to survive and helped us to thrive in those places. And so um, I think that, yeah, I, I, if I just focus on my relationship with, with God and I just focus on my relationship with other people, I can live a good life, but I think it would, uh, it wouldn't be the fullness of what, what is meant for us. You know, like there is something about relationship with creation and remembering in a lot of ways that ancestral wisdom and intimacy that, that we have been given, um, and, and meant to, I think, cultivate. Yes. Amen to all that. And then you, you went on a little bit further in the essay and said that, you know, as part of the reason that you reject a story or a narrative like make America great again, specifically because there's so many reasons to reject it, but you were saying specifically because it doesn't tell the truth about the story of our, of, of our cultures of like American culture of, of the history of white people, and everybody else here. And I, I just thought that that was interesting that it was like that it, to me, it is, it is something that fits my, does not fit my culture, but fits my personality <laughs> to say like, we, we just want to reject that. This is a, an objection to this narrative is that it's not accurately telling the history of our culture in and of itself, right? Like there's, like I said, there's many other reasons to do it, but that just false story or that like not watching the footsteps of who came before you and what they did, I don't know, I think is, is a really powerful idea in a way that I'm a little bit struggling to articulate at the moment, <laughs> but there it is. No, you're good. <laughs> I mean, I think like when I think about, you know, make America great again as this political platform, really it was based on tapping into the nostalgia of, of white supremacy without, yeah. without calling it that, you know, yeah. um, with, it's upholding this, that same, you know, controlling monocultural uh, culture that like America was built on that is embedded with things like manifest destiny and, mm. and eugenics and that were, you know, used to, justify uh the stealing of of lands and and oppression of peoples uh but painting it as this you know nostalgic uh america of the past that that must be resurrected one of the themes of your essay um was all of the emotional work that you did to get to the point where you could pray for forgiveness and blessing over america um even as it hurts you and your people um over and over again um in doing that, you're following the lead of the last queen of Hawaii, Queen Liliuokalani. Kalani. Um, and like, I've been to her home. Mm-hmm. I've been to that, that place. Um, the room where she was under house arrest, like sat in the bathroom, um, listened to the audio, read the prayers that she wrote. And it, it, it boggles my mind, like how she, she sat there praising God, writing prayers, pleading with her people to be nonviolent. I think of MLK in that way with my people, right? Um, mm-hmm. how does, how does her example resonate with you today, particularly as you think about the disaster capitalism that we we're just talking about with taking advantage of, um, the fires, um, what's ha- what the diversion of water that you were talking about in the beginning, like how does her example resonate with you? How does it impact you when you lead? And do you see or hear, um, calls to violence? And I, I would just add, if you wouldn't mind giving a brief bit of context for what we're talking about when we say when the queen was under house arrest and the overthrow and all that, just so everyone's up to speed. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
Um, so I guess a little bit of, of context in terms of the overthrow. Um, in, in January 1893, uh, Bibi Uokolani, who is the, the last reigning monarch of Hawaii, was overthrown uh, with the help of the United States Marines. In the, the 1870s uh, and 1880s, uh, Hawaii uh, had become, you know, this, this hub, this booming hub for sugar exports. Um, and so they had a lot of trade agreements with uh, the United States and, and they had, you know, treaties with the with, you know, U.S., uh, one of which was the, the Reciprocity Treaty, which essentially allowed Hawaii to ship sugar and, and goods uh, to the United States tax-free and, and vice versa. Um, when it came time to renew that treaty uh, in the 1880s, uh, the United States wanted full access of Pu'uloa or Pearl Harbor. Um, and the king at the time, who was Lili Uokalani's brother, Kalakaua, said no. Pearl Harbor or Pu'uloa uh, was the breadbasket of, of almost the entire south side of, of Oahu. Yeah, there were over 100 fish ponds um, in Pu'uloa, um, none of which are functioning today. Um, and, and so the, and, and also to allow a foreign military, uh, to have access, uh, would, would not be wise. And so he said, no, um, the response of the business community, the white business community in Hawaii, who were the descendants of the missionaries who had come from the East coast of the United States was to hold Kalakaua, the king at gunpoint and force him to sign a new treaty. Uh, the treaty of, um, not treaty, sorry, a new constitution, the constitution of 1887, um, commonly known as the Bayonet Constitution, which essentially stripped his power as a monarch and stripped political power away from the Hawaiian people. Um, and so it, it created proper, property requirements um, for anyone who wanted to vote. And at that time, the majority of Kanaka, the majority of Native Hawaiians did not own property. And so with one fell swoop, uh, it took power away from the monarch or the king, and it also took power away from the Hawaiian people. Um, fast forward to 1893, um, the people are pleading with the queen to, to draft a new constitution because essentially they have no power within their own government. Um, and she has no power within the government. And there's an incredible amount of affection and trust, um, which is different, I think, than a lot of other monarchies, but there's an incredible amount of affection and trust between the Hawaiian people and, and the Hawaiian monarchy. Um, and so she drafts a new constitution and less than a week later, she's overthrown. Um, and so I, I share that context because it's, it's directly tied to the overthrow, uh, which is directly tied to the descendants of the American missionaries who come to Hawaii. And so it's, it's literally the children and grandchildren of the missionaries who came from the East Coast of the U.S. Uh, to share about Jesus and to share about Christianity who um, got involved uh, in sugar um, and got involved in business and became very wealthy landowners and then left the church um, and end up overthrowing the queen um, as a way to ensure the perpetuation of their own political power. I mean, I think across the board, the Hawaiian community and, um, you know, those who are involved uh, in activism and politically and just Hawaiian people in general, I think across the board, people have an incredible amount of respect and reverence for the queen. Um, she's become, you know, a symbol of uh, Oivi or like native um, innovation and strength and, uh, and you know, humility and, and a, a love and a care for uh, her people um, that is respected across the board, uh, whether folks are Christian or not, or whether folks are 
um, involved in, you know, more of the Hawaiian um, political movements or not. I think across the board, uh, she's definitely become kind of an example uh, for a lot of folks. And I think for across the board also, I think especially for folks who are involved more politically, there is a push for nonviolent direct action. Um, and so I don't know any, um, you know, major groups who are advocating for violence. I think in general, folks maybe fall in different places in terms of what they think about Christianity um, and some of the other things that the Queen was sharing about. Um, and part of that is that, you know, by the end of the 1800s, Hawaii was was considered a Christian nation. There was a an incredible revival that had happened uh, where I think people saw um, being Hawaiian and, and Christian as uh, influencing each other. And, and um, that is not necessarily the case anymore. And, and part of that is directly tied to the overthrow and the fallout of the overthrow, where following the overthrow, um, Hawaiians who chose not to back America were excommunicated for the, from their churches. Um, and so you have a huge, uh, you know, juxtaposition of identity where to be Hawaiian was seen as completely con- um, contradictory to being Christian. So that for those of us today, we kind of have grown up in that. But that is a reality that our kupuna didn't necessarily face in quite the same way. Um, and that is the direct result of the descendants of the missionaries wanting to control the idea of what it meant to be civilized. To be civilized, it wasn't enough that you were, you know, um, that you were a Christian um, and educated because Hawaiians were all of those things. They had to recreate what it meant to be civilized. The folks that were pushing for annexation uh, recast uh, what it meant to to be Christian, where in order to be Christian, you had to support being a part of America and being a part of, of the United States. And that led to a huge fallout. Mm-hmm. Um in um, Christianity from a lot of folks in the Hawaiian community. Um, and so for those of us who are Kanaka and uh, you know, who would say that um, we, believe in, uh, we believe in God, we believe in, in uh, Jesus and you know, the revolutionary that he was um, and, and the, the ways that he stood for justice, um, I think, to look at Lili U and to look at her example, uh, both in terms of strength, in terms of humility, in terms of compassion, um, is an incredible example. Yeah, to be able to uh, to pray for and forgive um, those who were holding her, you know, under house arrest, um, those who had overthrown her, um, and to bless them while also you know, taking trips to the United States to advocate for the return of sovereignty to the Hawaiian kingdom. Um, she did both. You know, there was, there was the, um, the action um, and advocacy and, and ways that she responded in that way. There was direct um, caring for the needs of people. Um, Lili Okalani Trust still exists as a way to, to care for um, children and orphans, um, because that was an incredible need in the Hawaiian kingdom at, at the time that it was created, um, and giving her own personal funds for the actual caring of community. There is a lot of that. And then there was, there is a lot in her writings that she shares about her heart posture, um, and the ways that, that, um, she lives this life of 
of grace um, beyond what I think I, I can even imagine um, being in a position like that. In the Black community, there exists a strong resistance to Christianity as, quote unquote, a white man's religion. Um, and I think you extrapolated on that a little bit where already where you talked about this downstream y'all's generation having to deal with the conflation of Hawaiian identity, which would conflate with um, a Christian identity or not, right? Like that, the, I, I didn't know um, that Hawaiians who refused to back annexation to the United States were excommunicated, yeah, right? Either. So these, these new developments that create these fissures. Um, and I think within the, the black community, there, there, are similar, there are similar sentiments, particularly in these, these flashpoint moments. Yeah. And I, I think too, it, um, the, the version of, I'll, I'll just say like white American Christianity that has come um, in many ways also casts certain things that, you know, are, are tied to Hawaiian culture as, as paganistic, as evil, you know, things like hula, certain oh, other absolutely. practices, you know? And, and so I think for many today, uh, yeah, similar to what you shared uh, in terms of the the black community, like I I think for many today, uh, it's seen Christianity as the white white man's religion or as the colonizing, the tool for colonization that was coming in, especially because of the mm. complicity and and direct uh, direct role of the the church, um, not just members of the church, but the church itself in in the overthrow. Right. It's almost like a, a, the merchant, the military, and the missionary being like the three chords of a whip, right? right. Like they all come at one time. Absolutely. Um, and, it, and it's devastating. And so part of the work of decolonization that you've already talked about is untangling those things and then like untangling them as individual and then uncoupling them from following Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, because the work of, I mean, colonization is a complete and all-encompassing work. Like that's what makes it so destructive. So yeah, I just appreciate the the steps and the leaders and the the things you're laying out. Mahalo. Tell me if this is a <laughs> a worthwhile thing to say or if it's just too obvious. And I'm just being a white guy. I keep coming back. This is and to some extent. This is true of any time anyone like forgives or tolerates or doesn't meet um, harm with like the return of harm or violence, but. I, you know, when I when I think of what you're talking about for what what you do in your position, Danny, or what the what the Queen did in her time, I just keep thinking we don't deserve you. Like we don't deserve it. We don't deserve any of it. We certainly don't deserve your land. And I and I I don't know. I want people to feel that and be willing to just feel that. And when I say people, I mean my people. <laughs> I'm not Jonathan's not involved in this we right now. And I yeah, I I don't know. I just I want people to be able to feel that and under like not be comfortable with it, but like just be comfortable with acknowledging that it's there and then going and doing the stuff that Danny's asking you to do. <laughs> like going and donating and and you know, getting involved in the advocacy and reading about it and learning and um all of those kinds of things. I don't know if that's a helpful thing to say or not, but that's those are the thoughts that were swirling around in my head. I think for for anyone who is sitting in size position, and I would say if we're on the the front, the the top side of a power dynamic, right? Like it isn't coming upon me as a man to enter into the the pain and struggles of what it looks like for those who suffer dashing a patriarchy. 
Like it is my responsibility as a follower of Jesus to enter into what it looks like to sit in the shoes of someone who is not educated because I have an Ivy League education. It is my responsibility to enter into the structures that make it possible for me to have a mortgage and have a home while others suffer on the other side of that. I think what the, the glaring gap in our discipleship is the ability and willingness to sit in the tension where we can't fix it, but we need Jesus to make it possible for us to have the ability to fix it or just be present in the unfixedness of it. Because mm. the incarnation is that. Like the mm. incarnation is Jesus came with all power and privilege, giving that up to be among us and not fix everything, but just be present and fix what he could. And then ultimately fix everything by laying down his life and offering us eternity. Right. So, so I think there's something holy about being in power and sitting with those who have suffered under power that we represent sitting before them and benefit from. That is a lot, I think, a lot like Jesus sitting with Lazarus when he died and weeping, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead and that Lazarus was going to die again because Lazarus did die again. There's a discipleship message for all of us. Um, who inhabit a power structure. In this context, I think the gospel is a beautiful gift to white people to be liberated from the burden of supremacy, as Michelle Higgins would say. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I think, um, Danny, if we could just turn to to uh, another aspect of your work. Um, you work with the Oahu Water Protectors, and we've written a couple times in our newsletter about the water crisis there. Um, could you could you just explain a little bit about uh, what's going on there, and then what the what the work is that you're doing uh, uh, to try and do something about it? Yeah. So, um, I mean, dating back to before the overthrow to why Hawaii was supposedly annexed, it, it all ties to our location um, and the desire for from the U.S. military for a central place for fueling, uh, for, um, you know, heading up the, the naval fleet. Um, and so the head of the Indo-Pacific Command, so all of the U.S. Um, bases in Indonesia and throughout Oceania, throughout the Pacific, is, is here on Oahu. Um, about a quarter of our island is restricted military on, on this island. Um, and so in... Uh, the 1940s, um, there was a secret wartime build of an underground storage facility at Kapukaki, which is a ridge that sits um, between two districts. So it's between the Kona district, which is kind of where Honolulu is, um, and between the Eva district, which is where my Ohana lives, which is more um, toward Pu'uloa. And what they did was they built an underground storage facility to fuel uh, essentially the naval fleet. Um, and it was underground because they were worried about attack. Um, the public wasn't informed of it. Um, and there are uh, 20 tanks that are each 250 feet tall um, that have a carrying capacity of over a million gallons um, that was cre- that, that's in a mountain. Um, so you can't see it from, from the outside. Um, currently, there's still over 100 million gallons of fuel in those tanks. And they began leaking in the 1940s. Uh, less than 10 years before they were, uh, less than 10 years from after they were built. Um, and so there have been over 100,000 gallons that have um, been documented to have leaked. And we all know that 
it's it's probably <laughs> much much more than that right. um just because that's the amount that has been admitted to by the um by the navy the way that our islands get our water um is through what we call the aquifer um and so the rain you know uh that falls uh, in about 20 years will hit the aquifer so it, it's kind of like a huge brita filter in our mountains uh where it'll it'll filter through soil and it'll, it'll filter through layers of, of volcanic rock then it'll hit the aquifer and what the the uh board of water supply does is it pumps that water out um and it, it serve uh it goes to people's homes um culturally there's there's no cultural practice that's not tied to Aina and everything from the aquifer will eventually come out. So for example, um, in certain areas that the aquifer will pressurize and it, the water will come out, it springs. A lot of times springs are the start of streams in our mountains. And so whatever happens in the aquifer, not just affects drinking water, but it affects everything on our island. That'll pressurize, it'll come out in springs It'll enter streams, streams enter into the ocean, and all of that is tied to um, basically every cultural practice um, that we have. And so um, the poisoning of the aquifer, which has already happened, um, is an incredible one because really we're talking about um, the feeding of individual people. Like people had jet fuel uh, in November and December of 2021 coming out of their faucet um, because the um, the Red Hill Shaft, which is um, a part of the the military's joint base Pearl Harbor waterline, was literally pumping water from the aquifer that was downstream of the fuel facility, and the fuel facility had had leaked, um, and people had not been notified, and so a lot of folks that were on that joint base Pearl Harbor or Navy waterline had fuel coming out of their faucet and were drinking and bathing and um, and using water from 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 their homes um there is no distinction uh or there's no separation within the aquifer so all of that fuel and whatever chemical additives have been added to the fuel in the facility um, are just moving around in our aquifer currently um, and so defueling is supposed to um, start in october of this year um and it's it's supposed to wrap up um, sometime the start of of next year when you say defueling, do you mean emptying the tanks that are in the mountain? Yes. Okay. Yep, yep. So they're gonna they're gonna be removing the fuel from uh, from from the tanks. Um, one of the issues is that the facility has been left in such disrepair that you know, like in in, fo- in terms of praying, like we need to pray that nothing will happen. Like yes, we want it defueled as quickly as possible, but also the the facility is was was constructed in the 1940s <laughs> mm. um and and so even to get that to happen and a huge number of repairs have had to happen and um the amount of transparency uh for folks who you know communities have been affected by the u.s military there, there's not a lot of transparency um yeah a lot of prayer going into that in terms of our advocacy it's just keeping folks up to date about what's happening and really continuing mm. to hold uh, the Navy and the military and also the state offices um, accountable. Um, the Department of Health for the state of Hawaii um, refused to hold the Navy accountable. Um, and it took the Sierra Club of Hawaii suing the state for them 
to begin to do any sort of restrictions to the to the US Navy. And so before that, the facility was just getting passed and passed and passed and passed with no no check-ins, no no need for repairs. Um, there was a, a huge leak in 2014 where over 20 gallons spilled from a single tank because somebody forgot to like flip on a switch and it just hemorrhaged from the tank. Um, things like that, you know, have happened. And it wasn't until the, the public and community organizations started to raise concerns that the state um, started to do anything. And part of, part of the reason goes back to money and that the state gets a lot of money from the U.S. military to allow them to mm. be here. If they defuel the tanks, I'm guessing that does nothing to what's already in the aquifer, right? Is there any plan for that? Yeah, so the three stages are, uh, are defueling, um, are decommissioning, which is, is supposed to be making the tanks unusable. Uh, one of the things that we've been facing is uh, that the, the Navy has kind of started to redefine what decommissioning means, which uh -huh. uh, includes, it, includes repurposing um, and makes it so that, you know, should war happen, should a new administration come in that wants to refuel the tanks, that that's possible. Um, and so that's something that we're continuing to fight against. Um, the last piece, which you asked about, is remediation. Um, mm. And remediation is supposed to be cleanup, right? It's supposed to be um, actually figuring out and, and getting together, like, the, the brilliance of, of you know, um, Indigenous and Western scientists and figuring out what does that look like um, mm. in this situation. Um, what the Navy has has defined it as in the, the, a lot of the meetings that we've been in is what they call natural attenuation, which basically means leave it there and it'll eventually like disperse. Yeah. That's, um, I was going to say, that sounds like a <laughs> euphemism for do nothing. Yeah. And then, so it's like natural attenuation and then monitoring, which has nothing to do with cleanup. It's basically just drill wells and see where it's spreading. Um, and so that those are all areas that folks are continuing to need to speak up about. Oh my gosh. Somebody got paid thousands of dollars to come up with those two words. Right. Natural attenuation. And a pretty PowerPoint. <laughs> oh my gosh. So one one of the things that I think is powerful about Jesus is he offers a counter vision of how to be in the world. And so in your mind, what would justice look like for Hawaii? if you were to give it a few tangible things of what that would look like for reparations, restitution, um, that citizens, the church, the U.S. could do and be fighting for, what would some of those things be? I think part of it is like the structural, the structural shifts. And so uh, a, a huge part of kind of even to what we were talking about in terms of Red Hill um, and, and what's happening in Maui, like our economy is so dependent on the military and so dependent on tourism um, that we need, you know, huge structural shifts um, and, and the empowerment of community um, and I think Indigenous-led initiatives um, to be able to, to begin to shift that. And so I think in terms of advocacy, you know, it's supporting those. I think another part of it is, is the cultural shift. Like, I think because of the way that the tourist industry uh, has has grown from you know the the late 1800s, early 1900s to now, in particular in ha in Hawaii, like there's an infatuation with 
the exotic experience of Hawaii. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a cultural shift that needs to happen, right? Like we've talked about with Maui, the fact that people can be swimming in the waters that like our relatives have died in um, less than a week before, um, or like thousands of people continue to go to go to Maui as people are still living in shelters and not able to return back to their homes. Um, like I think there's like a cultural shift that needs to happen in terms of um, what it means to travel, uh, what it means to travel to Hawaii um, and, and the image of Hawaii. And, and then I think there's also like the meeting of, of real needs, like the lies that were told in the 1800s and, and early 1900s and, and that continue to be told today have real impacts. And so, you know, to this day, Hawaiians have still like all the statistics, right, in Hawaii, like highest rates of incarceration, some of the highest rates of drug use, some of the highest rates of, uh, you know, health effects like like diabetes, heart disease, all of those things, some of the highest dropout rates. Like there are ways that we can also meet real needs in the community and support organizations and, and community members who are trying to do some of the building. And so kind of to go back to, to Nehemiah, it's something that I've been sitting in a lot is like there there is need for building and there's need for fighting. Um, part of that building is cultural. Um, part of it is like empowering communities and leaders in the communities who really have have the best interests of of their people of our people at heart um and i think part of it is also some of the bigger structural shifts um in terms of economy in terms of uh uh, culture cultural perceptions of of hawaii Um, and i think some of some of those shifts will require investment in in people, like investment in people who are on the ground uh, trying to do the work. Speaking of investment in people who are on the ground trying to do the work, we already mentioned the link to the IV page uh, that we'll have in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that people can go to follow you or work that you're doing or involved in anywhere online, social media, anywhere else? Yeah, on the um, the university, um, on the university side, um, a lot of our donation links are on that page, but we can also follow Ivy Hawaii underscore justice. And that's the Ivy Hawaii justice page uh, where we try to promote things like that, that I was talking about. Um, and then if you message that, you'll get me <laughs> around the backside of that. Um, and then for folks who are interested in more of the Aina, Aina work, um, it's long. So hopefully there's a clickable link, but we have both a website and um, an IG handle and same thing. I run the backside of those. So, if folks are, are interested in supporting um, either of those. And then um, also for to stay abreast of, of Red Hill things, I think Sierra Club Hawaii and Oahu Water Protectors are two good, um, two good places to follow. Awesome. Was that first one, the IV Hawaii underscore justice, was that an Instagram handle? Yes. Okay, great, cool. So we will have links to all those things uh, in the show notes. Um, Danny, I may be emailing you for some of those links later. For sure. For sure. Um, thank you so much for being here. I mean, this has been an incredible conversation on so many different levels. Um, my thanks feels a little bit inadequate, but thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you both so much. I appreciate, yeah, mm-hmm. I appreciate you reaching out and again, just the opportunity to chat and share and yeah, talk story. Yes, man. For uh, all the listeners, a uh, reminder, like I said, up top, uh, please, if you support what, what we do, go to ktfpress.com. Consider becoming a paid subscriber there. Um, it feels a little bit silly to say in the, 
<laughs> in the wake of everything else we were just promoting. Um, but it is what it is. I, I said it. And, um, but please go check out Danny's stuff. I may just cut that out. Um, <laughs> Don't cut it out. <laughs> Don't cut it out. We all, we all need help. (laughs) Yes, it is all important. And God's economy certainly has enough resources for all of you. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Our our theme song, as always, is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam. And we will see you all in two weeks. Do you have like um, other stuff open right now? Do I? That is always the question. Yes. Are there things you can close or no? I mean, l- listen, everything can be open. That's fine. This is the most important thing right now. And history <laughs> can always be found. <laughs> Unless you're my daughter and you deleted a thousand messages from my inbox. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. I woke up. I woke up Thursday and I opened my Outlook and it said zero. No. <laughs> I was like, how, how did that How did that occur? And I said, Everest, did you delete my email? She goes, no, Baba. <laughs> <laughs> like she would know how to use Outlook.